0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Crime Science. In this podcast, we aim to explore the science of crime and the practical application of the science for loss prevention and asset protection practitioners, as well as other professionals. Co-host Dr. Reed Hayes of the Loss Prevention Research Council and Tom Meehan of Control Tech discuss a wide range of topics with industry experts, thought leaders, solution providers, and many more. On this episode, Dr. Joel Kaplan, Associate Professor at Rutgers University, discusses risk drain modeling by examining spatial factors, describing the social landscape, and exploring the future of crime dynamics. We would like to thank Bosch for making this episode possible. Use Bosch Camera's onboard intelligent video analytics to quickly locate important recorded incidents or events. Bosch's forensic search saves you time and money by searching through hours or days of video within minutes to find and collect video evidence. Learn more about intelligent video analytics from Bosch in zones one through four of LPRC's zones of influence by visiting Bosch online at Boschsecurity.com.
1: Welcome everybody to another episode of Crime Science, the podcast. Um, Today... As always, I'm joined by my co host, Tom Meehan of Control Tech, longtime uh, retail LPAP practitioner, uh, a whiz in all things tech as well as investigations. Um, and then uh, we're really honored and, and, and uh, excited to be joined today by Dr. Joel Kaplan uh, of Rutgers University. Um, and Joel is one of the absolute global leaders, if you will, on environmental criminology, but it's Particularly looking at how place and crime interacts, uh, operationalizing uh, critical science that others like Dr. Weisberg have uh, put out there and, and provided a ton of evidence for. Um, but the the Rutgers uh, risk terrain modeling process is something that I've long looked at as long as I've been had access to it. Um, there's a lot of good literature by uh, by Dr. Kaplan, by Joel and his colleagues. Um, uh, in the, in the works and of course out there in the literature. And so we're, we're really excited to talk to you today, Joel, about some of the things that you're working on, um, how it came about and and most critically, how can a practitioner, a law enforcement agency, or a, a loss prevention department within a retail chain or other commercial place, um, take advantage of what you guys are working on and how to think about uh, people and place interactions and what that means. So um, without further ado, Joel, if I might, welcome to Crime Science.
2: Thank you so much for having me. It's quite an honor. I look forward to chatting.
1: Excellent. So I'll just I'll just dive right in and, and let's first take a look at, at Joel Kaplan, PhD. Um, why criminology, Joel? How did you get into it? And then how did you sort of morph or uh, when did you sort of morph or was it immediately into in the environmental perspective within criminology?
2: My, I got my undergraduate degree in law and justice. So Early on, I've always been interested in criminal justice and uh, prior to that, I've worked as an EMT and so I've always been in emergency management uh, right into the point in time where I worked as a police officer and a 911 dispatcher and uh, separate occasions. And when, and when I started learning more and more about law and justice in the uh, in the undergraduate program, I realized or solidified uh, for me the the reality that criminal justice covers and encompasses so many life domains and affects so many different people through multiple degrees of separation. And I wanted to be part of that to affect system in positive ways. And I, you know, tried to figure out where my place in that realm was. And I suppose this is where I ended up. And there's still a lot more to be explored.
1: That's fantastic. And you know, talking about environmental crime and and spatial dynamics specifically, what kind of drew you to that? Who were some of the 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 authors or the that you had read prior to that that kind of got you fired up, got you interested in in sort of that specific area of criminology well
2: i find i find gis and mapping exciting because it uses the other side of my brain. i've always been a logical thinker and you know uh, in academia you do what you have to do in order to write and communicate and study effectively but but mapping and gis let you use kind of the artistic side of your brain and it it i think it to be a be marriage, at least in my own head, where it gives me the ability to be to communicate in creative ways and also to ask questions in ways I wouldn't have otherwise thought about because GIS and, and spatial analysis display and communicate data and information, in new ways and add new perspective to those data sets and it's from that new perspective that I and others are able to understand data and understand situational contexts in in new and innovative ways. So I suppose it's you know I think of GIS and mapping as an art form and I've always enjoyed art. In fact I remember when I was very young I wanted to be a um, I I wanted to work for Walt Disney I remember thinking and uh, that was for is a computer generated and you know i suppose kind of art has always has always been in my blood and you know gis and mapping give me the ability to to be artistic and and to use symbols and colors and communicate visually um, as well as through text or numbers
1: well i've noticed uh, by the way your kaleidoscope—that you—it's uh, an image, a powerful image that you've generated. That is obviously very colorful, very artistic, but yet concise way to portray some of the types of places that might generate more risk, that might create different dynamics in a specific local environment. So would that be a good example? I mean, it's really a neat way to to communicate. I think.
2: Yeah. In fact, the kaleidoscope was was created actually by Les. He he wrote a book. Probably now 30 years ago called the crime kaleidoscope. And, um, as Les and I began collaborating and when we began developing risk train modeling um, we adopted some of his early work on risk and risk analysis and his image of the crime kaleidoscope we adopted it to become the crime risk kaleidoscope and what essentially what the crime kaleidoscope suggests is The cylinder of the kaleidoscope represents the study setting in which you're interested in examining crime or other problems, threats to asset protection issues and so forth. And the parts or the pieces, the shards of glass within the kaleidoscope, features of the environment or environmental factors that come together in unique ways with every turn of that kaleidoscope. And as these features come together, they interact to Unique behavior settings for crime. So I I was really taken by lessons, and and it's been uh, it's been a really good way to explain what risk train modeling does for different types of crimes in different settings, which is to diagnose environmental conditions that lead to crime.
1: Excellent, uh, Tom. Um, let me go over to you. Any introductory questions or comments?
3: Yeah, actually, I I think the kaleidoscope is is awesome, and I encourage everybody uh all the listeners to give it a look up um i, I had first been introduced to it and actually in your book and you know I, I have a lot of questions i know the listeners uh from the retail world struggle with creating risk models um and i, I think in your book when you talk about the theory of risky places can you in layman's turn explain kind of what that means and how a retailer could translate that into their world
2: sure uh so The theory of risky places, um, Les and I were thinking about the various papers and and experiments and experiences that we've had with risk modeling uh, applied by policing or as applied by police for issues of of crime. And oftentimes we come across the fact that crimes cluster, which is well-documented in the literature, And we've even written about the joint utility of risk-trained modeling with other techniques such as near-repeat analysis or hotspot mapping. And we we recognize that new techniques don't have to replace old, but there can be different questions that specific techniques can answer, and some techniques that can answer questions better than others. And what we realized was that when we analyze crime clusters, or the phenomenon of hotspots or crime hotspots, we and then when that's used to anticipate future locations for crime, it assumes that crime doesn't move despite multiple engagements by police in these areas or in these hotspots. If we assume that crime doesn't move, that it's always going to occur where it always has been, Um, Then there's several issues that relate to, you know, sustainability, how sustainable can police efforts and and how do we understand what it means for crime to be occurring where it always has in the past. So we refer to that as exposures to crime, that is, previous exposures to influence future crime occurrence. And this could be caused or due to a number of different reasons. Um, some of which could relate to contagion effects or which, or the uh, the near-repeat phenomena, where an instigator or an originator event influences similar subsequent behavior nearby within a certain period, and multiple incidences of near-repeats or repeat victimizations results in clustering, which ultimately becomes hotspots. Um, so near-repeats, hotspots, kind of these uh, stationary or the uh, stable um, occurrence of crime at the same places over time um, is referred to as crime exposures. And vulnerability to crime is what risk-trained modeling helps to diagnose from these hotspots. That is the underlying environmental conditions that attract illegal behaviors resulting in these crime outcomes. So a place can be vulnerable to crime because it has features in the environment that attract illegal behavior, such as convenience, laundromats, gas stations, or the cliche dark alleyway, which would be defined as an alleyway with poor lighting. So when we diagnose these underlying conditions, it doesn't it doesn't necessarily mean crime has to occur there. But based upon the existing patterns of crime, these places are where crime occurs more often than not, and we can, uh, we can use that diagnosis through risk modeling to identify places of high risk, which we refer to as vulnerable places. So the vulnerability exposure framework combines areas of high risk With places that have had recent past events, which we've found to be the most predictive model for locations where future is likely to occur. And that's the theory of risky places.
1: You know, example, Joel, I'm wondering is, as I sit here in the uh, LPRC and UF, uh, research lab that we've got um, that replicates stores and different environments here, uh, Security Operations Center, for example, and I'm looking out the window to my right, to my south, and we've got a one-of-a-kind here in Gainesville compounding pharmacy close by, very close by, and um, the it generates a lot of traffic, uh, a lot of interesting traffic, if you will. Um, is that Would that be a good example of how... Uh, what's going on at our place and the the risk or the threat that you might be exposed to here changes immediately because of that place and the proximity of that place
2: yeah so we've you know we've actually seen some examples where um you know robbery or theft having to do drugs um in some cities we've seen um pharmacies as significant risk factors for robbery because people steal or rob prescriptions um and or and or the drugs um after they filled the prescriptions so if that occurs over and over again then that's going to be that area nearby a pharmacy is going to be a hot spot of crime but if we identify other pharmacies that may also be have similar potential for becoming a hotspot, but not located in an area that's highly then, not going to be as likely to become a hotspot or to be a location for displacement. So, if we, if you're focusing on a farm, on a pharmacy that's known to be problematic, that has a high concentration or clustering of these incidents that you're describing, then vulnerability could identify other locations that have similar qualities. For example, maybe the pharmacies next to. Uh, next to subway stops, near bars, across the street, or, you know, or nearby, or some combination, which then connects back to our our discussion about the crime kaleidoscope action effects, which create these vulnerabilities. So you can have a vulnerable place that's also is aggravated because of recent past exposures, but if you anticipate displacement, or you try to address those exposures by suppressing then understanding other vulnerable places can help you anticipate the likely um, displacement of these incidents and their emergence elsewhere. If you don't kind of address all of these issues at the same time, then any shift or any displacement could repeat and then become a new hotspot and then lead to you know, new exposures.
1: Excellent. I appreciate it. Yeah, that was kind of what we we thought, and we talk about it here um, with as our members come through town and spend time with us, um, discussing and looking at data and evidence, um, and using that example by day or night, that place or without that place, interacting with other places. There's also this sort of there's a There's a path that people walk between our buildings for some reason. It's a natural, as in the Army, we call it a natural line of drift. It's just sort of a natural pathway. And so to us, that adds yet another variable that that interacts with all these other things that are going on in place and time here to create maybe, maybe a little more risk to an individual that might be at our place. So, um, right. Fantastic. Especially in the, in the, in the, Kind of loss prevention and, and
2: commercial space, um, different types of retail or business infra- infrastructure can influence behaviors resulting in crime differently. And in particular, you have specific companies that might be type of facility. So you can have department stores or big box stores or convenience stores or grocery stores that have different names and um, are owned by different people or different entities but a grocery store or a convenience store can influence risks nearby and if you don't understand vulnerability then you can shift those risks to another similar store by a different name and I'm sure all of them would like to try to understand not just what's affecting this but what's affecting Behaviors resulting from the way in which our stores are, or um, connect to the situational context of human behaviors nearby. It's about understanding the influence of people at places, and so especially I would imagine in the uh, in kind of in the business sector and in the in as you're describing, um, this is not just a name brand. Um, But it's understanding how the facility or the facility type connects to the crime patterns that are occurring nearby so that they can all begin to work together to figure out ways to address these kind of comprehensively.
1: That's fantastic. So I guess another thing, you mentioned um, less, and for our listeners, uh, Joel, if you might Kind of who is Les, and um, and again, who are some others that you look to or that are excited and working on RTM with you?
2: So Les Kennedy is university professor at Rec. Criminal Justice. He's the former dean of the School of Criminal Justice, and he's now been at the university for over 20 years. Um, what some of your listeners might not know is that in my office on my wall, I have a diploma from the Rutgers School of Criminal Justice, where I graduated from the master's program. And it's signed by the dean, which is Les Kennedy. I was a student when Les was the dean. And the first GIS class I ever took was a crime mapping class taught by Les at Rutgers. And while I was there, I was working at the Police Institute. And um, Eric Pisa was a research assistant at the Police Institute. And he was the first person to teach me how to use ArcMap. At the time, it was version three point one.
1: That's excellent. Yes, very familiar names to us. And uh, again, for our listeners, you know, we've worked with Joel. Some uh, always picking his brain on RTM and environmental criminology, and the and the way we can use it as practitioners uh, to really solve problems or is- at least address those issues more. Precisely. And then uh, Eric has also gotten on and involved with us on a couple projects as we've tried to stand them up. We just always, always want to make sure we are talking to the right people, the absolute experts on everything, as well as things that we might have expertise in to get a broader perspective, to get second and third opinions, if you will. Um, Let me go back, Tom, to you. Um, What questions do you have for Joel? Yeah, so for a lot of our
3: listeners who um, have different levels of expertise, some of our folks actually do have Ph.D. level data scientists on there. If someone was really wanting to get into RTM, what's some platform or some software that they could start at a basic level? I know that it's a loaded question, but if you were saying to someone that really wanted to start
2: researching it, where should they start? Well, you know, to be honest with you, it's you, you have to start with the right mental state, uh, to be perfectly honest. It's, you know, you, you have to you have to be willing to ask questions about why, not just where. So while risk-train modeling is a spatial risk analysis and it's about mapping and geographic systems, it's really about trying to understand why and where. So there's software applications that we've developed at Ruck to help automate the process of risk-train modeling called RTMDX, or risk-train modeling diagnostic software, um, which is available to anyone throughout the world. It's, a, it's a online access it's on all platforms. But risk-train modeling was originally designed as a free resource. Uh, there remains free access to the software and all the resources to do risk-train modeling as an analytical technique are still available on the website. Our books, which describe the steps in detail for anyone who has the statistical or geographic information system (GIS) skill sets, uh, to do risk modeling by hand.
3: Great, and then I just had one other question, which is probably a little bit more technical. I, you know, when I read one of your books, I I remember reading about action and kind of a, a guide for problem solving. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I, I felt like the that was pretty easy to understand.
2: So ACTION is another acronym that Les Kennedy came up with. Uh, it had a different meaning at one point, but we adopted it and changed uh, some of the, uh, what some of the words meant to fit into the way in which risk is used by practitioners in the field. And while this is used by, often used by police, it is kind, it's intended to be more of an agenda or a framework guideline for how to think spatially and how to apply the analytical tools like RTMDX to actionable information. So, action is a focus on assessment, connections, tasks, interventions, outcomes, and notifications. And each one of these steps involves an interaction between the data Analytical outputs, human elements, which can be a variety of different stakeholders, um, not just analysts, not just police, key stakeholders who can help to understand the situational context of crime problems and come up with solutions either through existing resources or innovative ways in which to address uh, crime problems by forming what we call risk narratives. The key step within um, the, action, uh, the action plan. Risk train modeling is an analytical technique, and the results include tables and maps that diagnose environmental features that lead to crime. But what you do with that information is to form risk or stories that add situational context to the output. For example, Um, In one city, we focused, we tried to study um, shootings, and a risk training model identified convenience stores, laundromats, and vacant properties as significant risk factors, and where they all co-located in space were areas of highest risk. So, we asked police, we asked uh, members of the mercantile association, the local merchants, uh, neighborhood groups, and various other uh, key stakeholders within the community if this sense, and if so, why? And the consensus was that shootings were often drug-related, and the convenience stores were often open late, they're easy to come and go, easy to loiter, and often places where buyers are solicited by dealers to purchase. Then they're told to go to the nearby laundromats, which are usually coin-operated, not surveilled by human operators. Open late, not open 24 hours. So these are places where they can go to make the transaction out of sight, and then afterwards, these the buyers can go to the nearby vacant properties, use the drugs, but also vacant properties are used as stash houses for drugs and weapons by the dealers. And when police and community members and the mercantile, the, the members of the mercantile association understood this risk narrative, there was it was much easier to build about what to do about this problem and how to intervene by focusing on these places and not just every single person that happens to be located in these high-risk areas.
1: So let me ask you, that's a fantastic uh, example, Joel. And maybe from there we could, I know you had another case study um, uh, that you and I have talked about in the past or uh, that's coming up that involves using RTM to help the retailer and to help the local law enforcement partners of that retailer or retail chain uh, under, much better understand what's going on at that place and why and right around that place and the role that the, that the nearby locations are, are playing in that. Is there something that you could, a way you could describe, okay, I, for our LPAP practitioners who are working with law enforcement, okay, how can I take uh, all this great work by Joel, by Les, Eric and others, uh, and this particularly powerful RTM tool, how can I use this? Um, I've got a handful of stores, let's say, in a particular market, and we're having different but serious problems there. I wanted, I need to be better at diagnosing these problems so I can be much better at treating them.
2: Well, the first question a retailer would uh, likely ask is, how does my store influence illegal behaviors? or does it uh, so whether you're a gas station or a grocery store or a convenience store or a pawn shop you now the question is at the local level is crime occurring around my store more often than it's occurring occurring around other stores and if I have multiple stores even within the same jurisdiction what's going on at the local level what influence is my store having on nearby crime problems so uh, retailers that we've worked with and others that we've spoken to and those that we know about are thinking about the the local context for crime, which frees them from the need to try to allocate limited resources for asset protection across using data that's often macro, level, such as the Uniform Crime Reports, or um, or even citywide data if you can get down to the municipal level. Because what we've found in envir- in risk pain modeling which is very consistent with theory and experience and evidence from environmental criminology over the past several decades is that local environmental context matters, um, especially with different crimes and patterns thereof. So retailers have thought about how risk-trained modeling can be used for understanding the influence that their stores might have on, on nearby crimes. They've thought about how their stores might interact with other stores to mitigate or aggravate risk. So they've considered the use of RTM for site suitability analysis when considering new uh, store locations. Um, And they've also considered using risk, and we've seen uh, the use of risk trained modeling within stores. So there could be crime, many stores can experience, or stores can experience a variety of different crime problems from motor vehicle theft, to robbery, to assault, to overdose, all one property site because they have parking lots and they have the store facility itself. And some grocery stores have pharmacies or liquor stores or even restaurants. So each one of these units or divisions within these stores can influence behaviors differently. And in some of these stores, they exist all at once. So co-location is is real and present. Uh, So understanding these dynamics um, has become very helpful for issues of asset protection and allocating human resources as well as technological resources from uh, you know cameras and security patrols to different types of security devices within stores. And these are the kinds of things that that allow um, retailers to think differently about the problems that they're having on their properties, because it's not just about what we know from the data we have. It's diagnosing the data we have to understand the problem and some of its underlying causes so we can respond appropriately. And another example that I really like about this, some of these responses we've seen is in terms of, you know, a lot of big retail chains have profit, you know, where they give money to local community groups and organizations. And understanding the influence of your stores or other features in the environment that can aggravate risks of crime associated or connected or around your store allows these to prioritize giving campaigns that focus on not just improving the wellness of the community, which they often try to do, but prioritizing the giving so that they can be addressing the problems in the community that could also have benefit from the store in the uh, vicinity nearby. So, for example, um, if vacant properties are aggravating the risk nearby canes uh, then community giving might focus on encouraging community gardens on vacant lots.
1: Yeah, I love that, Joel. And um, as you know, we use these five zones of influence and in action uh, as part of our operational model here and um we're talking today all about zone five and you're providing ideas thoughts tool sets that could be used uh like you're saying we're an individual retailer or working with others or other commercial spaces and of course with uh the community including law enforcement uh you here you go you've identified uh crime generators or attractors that are approximate to you you're understanding the role they play now we want to give back to community, but most, most importantly, we want to enable and facilitate improvement in those areas so that there's more opportunity, non-crime opportunity and things like that. Uh, but by specifically focusing on, like you mentioned, an empty building, and, okay, here's what we might do to mitigate that, this process, this community garden, would not only enable and empower and engage local citizenry, Working together, these people together uh, increase that efficacy, that collective efficacy. But but also should help mitigate some of the risks, some of the victimizers that may want to come to your place. They can't now stage. And I think real quickly, if I could, I, I had a note and uh, I wanted to to talk about that human and place uh, risky place interaction and that you and I have talked about in the past. And as you know, we've had Dr. Uh, Tamara Harold. Um, on our uh, podcast on crime science, we talked about risky place networks and how these places, what they are, how they're co-located, but how they enable and uh, allow, facilitate would-be offenders, victimizers, to stage and to conduct, conduct their business, recruiting and all kinds of things that they do. What are your thoughts, if I could, um, Joel, on using some of the risky place network uh, concepts that she's developing uh, along with what you all are working on?
2: Yeah, well, we've seen, you know, some obvious connections are, you know, the virtual space of eBay or Craigslist, for example, where arrangements are made to make transactions, and oftentimes the convenient locations are picked. And sometimes it's these very parking lots of the businesses that we're, ta- that we're talking about. And what you find is when you have um, certain retailers uh using sites, they choose it for reasons that are convenient for business, such as easy access to highway for deliveries and areas with large spaces for parking lots and areas where their, um, their patrons can get food or um, frequently to go to other places of interest. So when we think about problems occurring at specific retailers, it's not just that retailer it's simply the location that's convenient that's providing an opportunity for these uh, for these incidents and the co location of people at places so therefore the interaction of people at places is exactly what risk train modeling is trying to diagnose um, in terms of environmental attractors and generators that bring people to these places to interact Um, but then when there's the the networks, including social networks, that bring these people there, then what you realize is there's a lot going on. And trying to solve problems by focusing on just one piece of this very big puzzle is not going to be a comprehensive or sustainable solution. So if anything, risk and modeling and, you know, my study of environmental ecology over the years has reminded me that there's always a lot of factors at play you need to be willing and able to understand them, not just technologically, but need to think about the situational context and the various uh, networks and pieces or factors that come together to create these opportunities. And you know, risk-term modeling is one piece, you know, network analysis and, uh, you know, various other aspects. From criminology and psychology and economics and and you know various other fields of study also can play a big part in understanding not just where these problems are occurring, ways in which we can
1: solve them. Now, that's it's fantastic holistic view, Joel. And I know here we actually have some brand new signs we're working on because of that interface, as you mentioned, online selling. Uh, meeting up at points in a, in a brick-and-mortar retailer's parking lot to conduct a transaction, something you purchased or somebody you met online or whatever. Those dynamics are coming from the cyber and the built social environments. They're interacting. They're taking place here. Things spill over from uh, you know a road rage incident into that parking lot and maybe even to that store. Um, so understanding what things are there, what are, what are the interactions, what's likely to occur and the other huge point I think you made additionally on don't just think though one dimensionally. If I've got, and what we're all talking about here is, is I think our listeners know, is if we've got a mosquito problem, we can just spray uh, off or whatever brand you prefer, uh, DEET uh, on yourself and your loved ones. Uh, but you might at some point want to work with your community, with the other assets and resources to address where those vectors are coming from, where they nest and breed and come from. Um, so we're reaching out now into zone five, um, and we're working collaboratively. But what else comes out of that uh, wet spot? What else could be a threat in some one way or another? Uh, but what else facilitates that? Maybe there's a you know, trash cans that are upside down, they should be turned upside down or whatever. Um, so I think you're right, looking at these things holistically, looking for uh, efficiencies and opportunities to work together um, on multiple current or maybe upcoming, upcoming issues. Tom, could I go back over to you? Um, any more questions or comments for uh, for Joel today?
3: No, I, I think we covered just about all of it. I think one of the, the great things here that you talked about is it's not just uh, simply about technology. So I appreciate the time and uh, I enjoyed the book and look forward to speaking to you again and reading more.
2: Thank you so much. You know, Your mosquito example reminds me of a public health um, example where you know, when there's mosquito problems, public health departments don't just go around and spray, they have um advertising campaigns to encourage people to empty stilled water and drain unused pools so that they can stop the and ensure that the sprays are one measure, but that there's a much more sustainable long term plan. And I think that, that very much relates to those, you know, what you described as the five zones of influence action in that stores need to think about how other stores and other places to affect them and not only how they affect the community that they're in um, because this is a very symbiotic relationship that every community has with its retailers and that the retailers have with all the different factors and features of its community
1: excellent well said and you know this is where as you know we're on that beachfront we're right here with the practitioners trying to make a real change and a difference uh trying to safeguard vulnerable people in these places and spaces and we've got to get it right and get better and better at it and tools like your rtm risk train modeling um uh, concepts and and software and interfaces are are just fantastic uh, and your research and writing is helping inform us and add that in. So um, I just want to say thank you, Joel, very much for participating today. Um, any, we always appreciate what you're trying to do and how you're trying to, to make a difference out there, and it is. Um, so on behalf of my colleague, Tom Meehan, uh, our producer, Kevin Tran, Um, the 160 corporations that make up the LPRC community. And, and of course, here at the University of Florida, we want to thank you, Joel, for everything.
2: Thank you so much. I'm really inspired by your work as well, and I see it every day when I shop and, and explore the world around me. So it's a good team.
1: Fantastic. Thanks so
0: much, Joel.